0: you know it's Christmas or whatever the holidays and we hadn't really been putting anything out and I was like oh well in the new year we'll be reading Fossil Capital and then I was like reading this I was like oh will we <laughs> it's a big book. <laughs> so
1: yeah in, yeah, in, classic. In, in classic auxiliary statement fashion, we've read half of a book and then we're going to try and make a podcast about the first half of the book without having read the second half of the book. And then I was going over some of the things that are covered in the, the first half of this book or re-going over some of the things covered in the early chapters of this book. And I was just a bit like, he leaves a lot of, a lot of things hanging. Yeah. And I'm just, I was a bit like, maybe this book really does um, point out the flaw. <laughs> <laughs> in our strategy but it is the only strategy we can come up with, with that with will actually work right what are we going to do record yeah. a read a 400 page book before making any podcast yeah exactly i mean to be fair we haven't How many recorded interviews an episode we like to... this
0: <laughs> exactly in like i don't know a month two yeah. months something like that which let me just say dan it's very good to actually get back and just doing a dan and jack show this is nice i mean we've never had two interviews in a row that was wild
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we hmm. back to the classic format
0: Um. (laughs) (laughs) the key to success the little recipe that we've had for success quote unquote um is there i feel like we should mention the two interviews that we had um once again if you haven't go back and listen to our interview first with agana where we talked all about um dutch communism and communist platform and organizing in the socialist party and then getting kicked out of the socialist party of the netherlands which is all very good and then to ted Reese, which was an excellent conversation all about crisis and collapse and all sorts of good stuff i thought it was very funny at the end i don't know if this is in the episode but he was like thank you for your um uh what did he say he said something like uh uh like complicated questions or like deep questions something like that And I was like, no one's ever said that <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, we've never challenged anyone in a particularly deep or difficult level. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But hey, we're we're uh, we're getting they're getting better. But yeah, I really enjoyed those. Except so, for ourselves, uh, of course. Uh, well, yeah, no We're kidding. constantly challenged. <laughs> I just talk ourselves in circles. And be like, what are we talking about? Uh, there's something I wanted to say about the Ted Reese interview, but I forget what it is. So I might just come up with it. We'll be talking, I think, about a lot of similar stuff, maybe.
1: In today's I think episode. so, yeah. There's uh, overlap with this. Yeah, I, I kept my, finding myself thinking about that. Mm. Uh, interview, and in some ways also the Jason Moore book obviously, but I was thinking about that Ted Reese interview and some of the preparations I did for that, mostly because a lot of this is, although this is a history you can constantly look for those sort of like uh, economic uh, mechanisms, rules, laws, dynamics of capitalism as outlined by Marx that um, underpin this history and so it's sort of like, you can read this through that lens for sure even yeah. if Malm isn't directly doing that, I suppose.
0: Yeah, he's doing... I don't really know what school Andreas Malm comes out of. I don't... You can tell that he's kind of inspired by J.A. Cohen, so maybe he's kind of trying to do a like analytically Marxist kind of thing. Um, he's definitely... <laughs> we talked about this last week when when it was just you and I talking, <laughs> where he kind of does the frustrating thing that isn't very progressive anymore, where it seems like whenever he's talking about like a worker, he uses the pronoun she. Whenever he's talking about a capitalist, he uses the pronoun he. And it just comes across as like, Ugh, I don't know if that's progressive anymore. Like, just use they. And it makes me uncomfortable, which I don't know. I feel like I've seen in G.A. Cohen before. So maybe that's his influence, I guess.
1: But, um, <laughs> yeah, if we could find some reason to cancel that kind of <laughs> linguistic behavior, purely on the grounds. Well, I, I don't mind on what grounds we have to cancel it, but um, it, it is mildly irritating. Or at least yeah. like, just, it just like, I don't know. It stands out, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: what well, uh, it stands out, especially when it's just like a white guy doing it. It's like, <laughs> wow, mom, you're so woke. Good for you. That's excellent. Well, I don't know. What are you going to do? Of all the things, of all of the things that bother me about this, of which there are only like two, that was probably like the thing that bothered me the least. So what are you going to do? Um <laughs> But I guess we should get into it. Uh We did indeed, listener, as we've said, we read the first half of this book, Fossil Capital, the first eight chapters. Um the one thing I knew about this book before we started reading it is that there <laughs> is like insane scrawling of like, uh, he tries to do a like Marxist, by which I mean like Marx-esque, um, you know, kind of like MCM, like, you know, kind of a little diagram of the way an economy works, but he, he puts like F for fossil fuels in there to be like here's how a fossil economy runs and it's just it's just like this insane sprawling like arrows going every which way and letters <laughs> going
1: every which way that's all i
0: knew about this book thankfully we haven't gotten that yet yes i didn't
1: see that at all so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm glad you didn't tell me about that ahead of time
0: <laughs> yeah well um, yeah next time we'll have to tackle yeah, that yeah yeah before oh, we, we started the
1: recording project? jack very eloquently described this book as being just water and steam <laughs> um,
0: that's all it is
1: which which it is actually quite a the majority of it is or at least this first half which i think we've maybe cut in quite a strategic place actually because mm. i think the sort of arc of part of the narrative kind of ended um, at the point when we finished um which is all about why it was that steam power won, won out over um water power in, in the state in the sort of competition between which form of power would be the dominant one in the industrial uh, revolution, particularly as it developed through uh, cotton production
0: but, in England, specifically yeah, in like yeah, a yeah. specific time. And that's the one thing where I'm like, I mean, again, a lot of our criticisms we should hold until we actually finish the book. Imagine that. <laughs> but like, I wonder to what extent this this felt to me like a very excellent history of a specific time in a specific industry in a specific place, why to yet you know, the British textile industry in the late 18th and early 19th century adopted fossil fuels over water power. And so I wonder to what extent then that extrapolates out to capitalism as a whole. Um again, we should probably wait until because hopefully he'll talk about that, because right now all he's shown and all he's proven in a convincing way is like a social history of why coal was adopted in the British textile industry. But um, as we've done on the show before, I'm more than happy to just be like, it started in England, the bad things started in England at a specific <laughs> time. <laughs> so I'm always fine with an
1: explanation like that. Oh yeah, we've not had a sort of like expletive-filled diatribe against England <laughs> in a little while. <laughs> from you uh, or I, they most often come from you. In um, the syphilitic slums of Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> I will I think...
0: also say... Being you being from Bolton and my partner being from West Yorkshire, every time they mentioned a place that I knew, I was like, Oh, like whenever they mentioned Bolton, I was like, That's where Dan's from. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience. There's one mention of Farnworth, which is a little, it's part of Bolton now, I think, but like a little satellite town of Bolton as a satellite town of Manchester. So that was quite nice. There's a few place names that stood out. He-
0: he paints a very interesting picture of what it must have been like up there back then, where it's like a lot of these places, like, I don't know, Manchester, I always just imagine as not places like that. Maybe not being too much before the industrial revolution. And so in this point, it's like, Oh my God, it must've just been a ton of people, but all people just working in mills. Like that's crazy. Cottonopolis.
1: Cottonopolis indeed. That is the way that he (laughs) describes that. And it's, it's, yeah, there's a point in this book when he does, um, he does, because it's funny, you could read this book and get the impression the entire British economy or the um, yeah, entire British economy at that time was entirely cotton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he does have to pull back at one point and show what a small percentage actually cotton was of the British economy as a whole. Uh, but when it does come to Manchester and Glasgow, um, other sort of like really built up urban areas in the cottonopolises as you described. But also cotton wasn't localized in those areas exclusively, which we'll get onto in a minute. Um that was the really predominant um industry in those areas, I guess.
0: Yeah. Probably wouldn't have been very nice. I'm just going to go out on 11. Yeah, especially after the coal bit, was attacked.
1: Oh. Well, that's the thing. Every every <laughs> every time he was describing all of these sort of like water mills, particularly in all mm. of these slightly, um, sort of slightly bucolic isn't the right word, but like slightly, I imagine them as slightly sort of uh, utopian. Mm. What does he call them? Colonies. Colonies. These sort yeah. of like colonies that built up around uh, water powered cotton mills. But sort of, I imagine sort of these big, steep, rolling valleys and hills, and these sort of like all quite uniform houses in the countryside kind of thing. I was like this Legions probably sounds a, old, old a lot nice. I mean, that's not to say that any any part of working in any of these. uh <laughs> cotton mills would have been enjoyable particularly when you get onto the chapter in this where he's talking about the length of the working day. Yeah. Um, well he
0: did say at one point though where he was like people some people were attracted to these colonies because they were given a small garden on which they could grow vegetables and I was like I'm there. It's yeah. <laughs> like give me a exactly. 12-hour work day I don't exactly. care. I've just got
1: to work the 12 and a half hours in the in the cotton mill. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs>
0: all right. Um, um, so I, I guess maybe we should start before we explain all that maybe at the beginning imagine that. Um <laughs> It is very cold in my room right now, so I don't, if, okay. I don't. You can definitely tell Dan because I'm wearing like five
1: layers. Uh, yeah, it looks but, like he's wearing a goodube and the fleece. And, uh, okay. All right. Hey, okay. This is a robe? Uh, dressing maybe. A dressing gown? A robe, a robe, a robe. It looks like a dressing gown. A very fine dressing gown. <laughs> that's same a very thing, fine right? robe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. I think that, anyway. that might have been Jack's effort to hurry this podcast along a <laughs> bit. So he could find a warmer environment somewhere <laughs> else. Actually, yeah,
0: they're like, wow, that's weird. This episode's only 20 minutes long.
1: Because huh? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> at some point in to, to Just Jack froze to death.
0: Hey, did you get snow there, by the way? I didn't ask you. We did actually get a little bit of snow yesterday. Oh, yeah. Cool. Um the news yeah. here was like Cornwall underneath six inches of snow. And I was like, oh.
1: okay." <laughs> well, I woke up and mistook, mistook all the snow for ice on cars. That's how little there was. Uh. I was like, there was a little <laughs> dusting on the top of all the cars. And I just thought it was ice. Although yeah. I did see a lot of cars driving around with a few inches of snow on top of them. So I think being at the coast, Ooh. probably. Yeah. Anyway, mm, this is yeah, boring enough. but I think being at the coast probably <laughs> really limited the amount of, <laughs> of snow that I saw to basically none. Although it has just hailed constantly.
0: It rains constantly
1: here, but then when it gets cold, it turns out that it just all of that rain turns into hail. So that's nice. Come to the coast. Hailing.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of the reversing of the jet stream, um, (laughs) so he's okay. So he starts all this out by giving us like, you know, what he's planning on doing, and he starts it out literally. His first couple like paragraphs are all about like, you know, the first capitalist in a small Lancashire village to put some coal and, you know, in a, buy a steam engine or whatever, probably had no idea that he would contribute to, like, the salinity of the Nile River Delta. And, like, he just goes on to list all of these yes, cat- catastrophes. Yeah, exactly. But then he goes on to basically be poetry. like, this is the beginning of what he calls like the fossil economy, right? And he gives his definition of the fossil economy as being self-sustaining growth um linked up with fossil fuels as like the main engine of I don't know, getting energy i guess right and part of me like already like this is again when we read the jason moore and we were like okay eventually we'll read fossil capital we were both like maybe we should have read fossil capital first because i think we're just going to really wind up liking this jason moore book a lot immediately i was like well i don't know about this idea of a, of a fossil economy because i don't think it takes into account everything that you need to take into account when you like think of the ecological destruction we've caused because like global warming is one thing. Right. And then that very clearly does come from burning fossil fuels and this idea of self-sustaining growth and needing to exploit and needing all these frontiers, blah, 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 blah. But like, I don't know. What about like the ecological destruction that we read about when we read uh, the Schwang book, social contagion, right. About like avian flus and formal subsumption of like plagues, right. And real subsumption. Like, this idea of a fossil economy, I understand, and I like it, but it does feel, and I hate to say this, it does feel a bit Cartesian to the to its own, uh, fuck, what's the word, bad thing, to its own uh, discredit, I guess, I don't know. Just because, like, well, it isn't just the fossil fuels that are the problem, right? It is the way that we make nature.
1: So, I don't know, I don't know, did you feel the same way? I constantly had in mind Jason Moore's criticism of this book and... Uh, and Andreas Malm's description of um, the relationship between, well, the origins of uh, the current ecological crisis being in the Industrial Revolution. Um, I think that's what uh, Moore is saying that Malm is saying. Um, uh, Malm describes, as I recall, a sort of dialectical process whereby human beings have always created nature, and nature has created human beings, and there's sort of co-equal, not always co-equal relationship, but like, as I say, a dialectical one. And it's from that sort of position that I think he's criticizing Marm as having the sort of starting point for uh, the ecological crisis. Um, The other angle, which I want to sort of come at this for a bit, was my confusion, I suppose, or what I feel like isn't very well described in this book, and maybe we can try and work out what Marm is actually saying, relates to the idea of growth and the idea of self self sustaining growth. Obviously, we would say that capitalism predates the industrial revolution, as would Jason Moore, and as I think uh, Andreas Malm would as well. He doesn't. He never says like uh, capitalism pre exists pre exists the industrial revolution, um, and in actual fact, he doesn't even say that um, self sustaining growth. In the way that he describes it as being like um, a form of growth, which is uh, secular rather than sort of intermittent, I suppose. Uh, one which, and one which I think, to extrapolate a bit in my own understanding, which I think means that like human beings have some kind of control over, they can sort of like mitigate and control the exogenous factors, and it sort of becomes their internal economic process. Growth becomes a sort of like an economic process endogenous to the economic system it's created, if that makes any sense. Um, but Mom doesn't even identify as the first instance of self-sustaining growth being um, the use of fossil fuels and steam power and um, coal-fueled steam power engines uh, in cotton mills. He actually identifies the implementation of water mills um, in cotton production as being the first instance of this self-sustaining growth and he gives a lot of he gives some sort of stats about the various growth rates um at the end of the 18th beginning of the 19th century um and growth in cotton is just sort of like almost exponential whereas growth in all sorts of other different industries iron and um all sorts of other different things are sort of flatlining and not flatlining but like um the growth is much slower, right? Like a few percent a year as opposed to uh, cotton, which is like 12% a year kind of thing. Um, And I think basically the point he's making is that it isn't until sort of like fossil power sort of conquers um, cotton production in the middle of the 19th century that it then kind of conquers being the power source for all of production so it's at sort of that mid 19th century point where fossil power takes over um but it's not the first instance of self sustaining growth um and so i'd be willing to i'd be willing to uh, um accept an argument which says capitalism starts much lower and uh, much earlier in history rather sorry and then um it sort of trundles along at sort of like exploring what this new economic system means with different economic systems um, or different f- uh, forms of social relationships still in existence. Um, and it takes quite a long time for capitalism to get to a point where it can actually have um, what we now recognize and what Marm describes as business as usual style growth, i.e. exponential secular growth. Yeah I don't know how you feel about that and I don't know how that conflicts actually what we've been thinking about in terms of capitalist crisis you know does capitalism have self-sustaining growth really or yeah uh, how, well how, I how, think what he I think like... what he
0: calls self-sustaining growth is just mcm prime right it's just capital yeah. it's literally just like yeah I don't know it's it's it it's mcm prime which is to say starting off with more than you or no ending with more than you started from right So I don't know. I don't think self-sustaining growth is really the best way to put it, but it is, it does allow for the expansion of capital. At one point in this book, it almost seems like he tries, he tries to make the point that steam begets capital and not the other way around, not capitalism creates this, this steam thing. But I don't know, I, I, there's a bit of conflicting, it seemed like there's a bit of conflicting ideas in this about what comes first And I think maybe even just trying to frame things in that way is a little bit like, it's not viewing the development of the productive forces as well as the development of the social relations as like, God, here I go again, as like dialectical, as like a push and a shove. It isn't one thing comes before the other thing. It's that they both play off of each other and there are contradictions between both and there are things that attract them to both, right? So like, I know that that kind of just sounds like a lazy way of describing history, but I think that he actually proves that It isn't one or the other, it's both, right? It isn't the social relations or the development of the productive forces, because he's trying to put forward a social history of why capitalists chose the more expensive thing, which was steam, at the expense of water. And he's like, we need to put forward a social explanation of this. To a certain extent, it was to discipline the working class during a time of an overaccumulation crisis and like a crisis of labor being at a really strong point, so... It's both of these things, right? It's like, he makes the point that Britain had always burned coal for thousands of years. British people have been burning coal, but it wasn't until it was like plugged into that MCM prime circuit that um, we got the fossil economy, which again, I think if you try and pinpoint a beginning of like climate change and a beginning of like global warming, you're going to have a bit of a tough time because I would just be lazy and say it's when capitalism began, right? And it's like, I fucking pick whatever you want for that. Because it is when you plug in these resources to growth for the sake of growth, to exchange value to abstract labor that you get these disasters, right? But I mean, like, I don't know, now I'm just kind of rambling. But it's like, we did, we do have ecological crises in other modes of production. That isn't to say that we don't. And we've talked about the ones in feudalism about, you know, this, that came from this class conflict as well. So yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky one. And I, I feel like I've gotten maybe more questions than answers from this. Even though he puts forward such a like good concrete history of why Steam was adopted, it's like, well, I don't know necessarily if yet in these first eight chapters, I have an answer as to kind of like what drove that necessarily, right? Chicken or the egg kind of thing. I don't know.
1: I feel like he's definitely coming down on the side of... Oh, for my reading of it, I feel like he's definitely coming down the side of social relations being a really driving factor in this development and he sort of it, it, one of the points of confusion for me one of the things that i was referencing earlier on was the way he sort of like he describes an argument and then doesn't come down on the side of it clearly so far as i could tell so early on in like the second chapter of this book he frames um some of the debates around the adoption of um the burning of fossil fuels for power and its relationship to the industrial revolution and the onset of capitalism he um, he describes some people who frame it in a kind of like ricardian malthusian paradigm where it's all about a relationship of shortage and overcoming a relationship of shortage and malthus and ricardo in various ways like predicted certain crises stemming from um, shortages of various uh materials kind of th- raw materials or um whether it's sort of fertile arable land or like uh population growth outpacing our ability to uh use that land to uh, reproduce ourselves kind of thing um and it was unclear to me where he stood vis a vis that argument he sort of like sets up a critique of that and then later on in the book he also Um, describes how that paradigm really doesn't explain what it is that is happening. Um, But as it relates to sort of the adoption of coal over water power, um, he applies that kind of paradigm and then debunks it by saying that, well, water for the turning of uh, water wheels for the sort of powering of the machinery in factories is considerably cheaper than steam power and fossil fuels and also at no point in the history of the 19th century does uh, british industry even get close to tapping the full potential of water power in terms of the horsepower it could provide for um for uh, industry so he said well we have to look for some kind of other explanation um if it was simply the case that they hit some kind of Material barrier that they couldn't extract enough horsepower from this source, so they went to another source. Um, that would be a sort of like understandable, very simple uh, economic calculus that they did and decided, well, we've got to adopt this other thing. But um, it's not the case. He proves that there's plenty of untapped potential. Uh, and then, as you say, he runs through a whole series of explanations as to why what's actually happening is it's the relationship between capital and labor, which in so many instances um encourages the adoption of fossil fuels but then also there's an in, interest in sort of like very important digressions in this book where he talks about the relationship to automation as well and the sort of like development and adoption of different types of uh machinery the sort of the automation of weaving as well as the automation of spinning of cotton which are all about disciplining labor uh, being able to bring in cheaper labor, make the hot process simpler kind of thing. Uh, and I'll stop in a minute, but like what that makes me think of what you said at the beginning of this was like, what we're seeing here is the beginnings of some of these really important dynamics of what we understand to be capitalism, the relationship between capital and technology, uh, the relationship between capital and labor and the way that interfaces with technology. Um, and it sort of just shows that those dynamics don't, magically come into a existence with the onset of capitalism in its sort of agrarian form, but it takes the development of capitalism to actually develop those, uh, relationships. If that makes sense. Because like, um, as we've sort of discussed in the past, and I think we broadly agree that if capitalism started in agriculture, it was kind of a relationship between the, uh, the agricultural landlords and their tenant farmers and the sort of like, the shift from extra economic to economic extraction, the desire to increase production, by, well, the the encouragement to increase uh, agricultural production by driving up rents and trying to encourage efficiencies in um, agricultural labor, which doesn't really have anything to do with uh, wage labor per se from the outset, nor with technology per se from the outset. All of those sort of things have to develop later on. And what we're getting in this book is a description of how that happens. Does that make any sense? Yeah,
0: no, I think so, definitely. It, it's funny because there is so much to it. It's like, he he's very good at not just giving you a simple explanation necessarily because it's like, oh, you could just be lazy and just say, well, there was like a, a crisis of overaccumulation in the 1820s and everything just kind of collapsed and blah, 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 blah. There's going to be a cop coming by, whatever. We're just going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But um, he also says that there are a number of issues with water itself. And even though, as you say, like water was never, it's like real horsepower was never fully tapped. Like what it could really do was never fully tapped in the UK. Hang on. Even though that was the case, like, there were still a number of other issues where with that, with water as an energy source that made it, that it was not really conducive to capitalist development. And he kind of splits these up into two different categories, the advantages in space and the advantages in time. And they're both relatively like pretty simple. The advantages of like, to talk about space first, he, he says that one of the reasons that, um, water was such a pain for people is even though water was technically free, right? Like you didn't need to go mine water. It was just flowing is that you needed to basically go to where the water was. And so you couldn't just set up like a water mill or like 50 water mills in the middle of your town because there wasn't enough water. So you needed to go into the middle of nowhere and set up like we were talking about these colonies. And then when you set up these colonies, like that means that you're relying on a very different workforce than say, like a typical wage laborer, right? Because people need to be attracted to these places. So you give them a plot of land, you build a little schoolyard or something. But even then, like people could kind of just get up and leave. And then if they got up and left because conditions were really bad, then you just, you couldn't immediately replace them. So you like labor had a bit more power over capital in these places, which is kind of like almost laughable because at one point he also talks about how when they couldn't find anybody to work there, they just go into town to like the local orphanage and get, apprentices which the listener can't see me doing heavy air quotes there which were basically like nine-year-old kids that were treated like slaves (laughs) which not very nice we don't like that um but obviously like if you think about having a factory in the middle of a big city which you couldn't really do with water you couldn't just go replace one schmuck with another schmuck right like it wasn't really wage labor you had to set up these colonies kind of in the middle of nowhere and uh, yeah it was just obviously not what capital wants because capital wants to be able to do whatever it wants to the workers and if they leave fucking just get some scabs in because everybody needs work right but that's not the case in where were you saying farnsworth in outside manchester
1: i think probably farnworth was entirely in the cottonopolis but let's take it uh, as a hypothetical. Maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe there was some kind of like water-powered uh mill colony called Farnworth somewhere <laughs> Not the
0: Farnsworth. I know. Uh. Um, And then, yeah, he also talks about advantages like, well, just to go off that actually, that this actually led to a bit of kind of competition amongst capitalists. And I thought this was really interesting, because this is just another lesson to show that the capitalist class is not always as kind of like monolithic as we tend to think of it. Because he would say Say one capitalist goes out to the middle of nowhere, sets up a little dam, they find a nice river, they set up a little dam and they set up a nice little mill there. Well, if one capitalist is damming a river, then that means that the capitalist down the you know, mile or so down the river is kind of having their access to water kind of blocked off. And so that creates a tension there. So then he says there's this big movement to create reservoirs, right? Where it's like, okay, whatever, we'll all just, we'll pool our money, we'll make a big reservoir, and then we'll all be able to have as much water as they want. But even that, it's like, well, I'm putting in more money than you, I don't really know where this water is going, and it's just kind of led to this division in the capitalist class where, kind of funnily enough, they could just never make it work, even though they all wanted the exact same thing. It's like, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Yeah, it was really
1: interesting to me that section because it just, it does show. I mean, he does cite a few instances where it did kind of work and these big sort of like um, environmental engineering projects happen that bring water to places where they didn't have water and they managed to sort of like encourage lots of people, lots of sort of uh, capital investors to come and build and uh, build cotton mills at these places where they've managed to create through process of reg- reservoir and. Um, sluicing sort of like control the supply of water to these various places so it is proved to be kind of possible but as you say in the vast majority of instances agreement just can't be reached on how to implement these things and it was really it was interesting to me because like it sort of proves that um generally under capitalism or at least this at these stages of capitalism but i think it's still true you can't have full sort of like comprehensive uh I guess what you call planning, I suppose. You can't sort of like unite people to a common task because of the dynamics of capitalist competition um, and the sort of general inability to actually work out. So how much benefit do I reap from this particular sort of process of damming, building reservoirs, damming water, trying to get more water to the mills? Okay, do I pay three shillings per horsepower? Do I pay four shillings per horsepower? How far down the stream am I? uh, extracts like minorly less benefit from it kind of thing um, so yeah as you say sort of for for lack of an ability to cooperate the full benefits of water power are impossible to realise I suppose so in some ways maybe capitalism does actually did actually kind of like extract as much as it could from water power not because that sort of horsepower that could come from water didn't exist, but just the dynamics of capitalism wouldn't allow for um, for it to be extracted, kind of thing. Whereas having your own steam engine in your own factory, regardless of how much more expensive it was to buy the coal, at least... If sort of, it was yours, it was your piece of fixed capital, you sort of know, knew what was happening with it, kind of thing
0: mm. yeah, exactly, and that was what he he phrased that in a really cool way, where he was like, there's something in the nature of water, just like there's something in the nature of all renewables, whether it's light from solar power or wind from wind power, where it's just not conducive to capitalist production, and part of that is what we talked about with Ted where he was like, you need to basically keep valorizing your capital, you need to keep exploiting later later labor so you go in and you dig up the stuff or you pump the oil out of the ground right even though that's getting harder and harder to do but wind and light and water well it's just there and you don't even really need to do once you set up the initial investment it's just there and it just keeps showing up for free so he was like you know and there were obviously things in english law back then as hopefully there are still where things like light and water are commons i suppose or like you know things that should basically belong to everybody so they realize where it's like okay schmuck you can't just dam up all this water because i part of that river still runs through my property you know what i mean and i want that water that's like common to all people even capitalists
1: mm-hmm. there's a really interesting part in this where the dynamics between fixed capital as it relates to fossil fueled powered cotton mills as opposed to water wheel powered cotton mills come into play and this sort of also relates to the social relationships, the relationship between capital and labor that are sort of behind all of these sort of like developments. In a discussion, that it sort of comes about in the discussion of whether the sort of campaign, the growing campaign to shorten the working day by act of parliament. Um, but also it does relate to how various capitalists are also able to react to... Uh, industrial action and strikes. Right, if you have a co- if you have a, a, a fossil fuel powered cotton mill, most of your investment actually is in coal. And if you're going to have to stop production because of industrial action, you just shut down the engine, and then you're not wasting anything. Whereas in these sort of like uh, water powered cotton mills that are in these colonies, so much investment has gone into actually building the the mill there building all of the houses there building all of the schools there enticing all of the people to come and live and work there that if there is some kind of interruption to production all of that investment in fixed capital is immediately being squandered in a way that if there's some interruption to production in the cities in the cottonopolises um where steam is the most predominant thing that um that loss isn't suffered in the same way. And now, in the in the in the colonies, <laughs> um, in <laughs> uh, you're from the colonies, <laughs> from the colonies. <laughs> uh, in these colonies that were that are built around water powered cotton mills, one of the biggest pro- possible interruptions to production is actually whether there's enough water flowing past the water wheel to actually power the machinery so a lot of things that governed the working day in these places was actually how long for a day can we run the machinery and so there would be some days in the summer when there were droughts and they'd have to do sort of like five and six hour days but then the the owners of the mills would then try and force their workers to work overtime through the productive sort of periods of the year when there was plenty of water and they sort of try and actually calculate how many hours had been lost because of these droughts and um and then extract that back from the workers at sort of wetter periods of the year so it would mean that the working day was extended to 13 and a half 14 hours kind of thing um which when they started to be campaigns for uh, a shortening of the working day those capitalists in those areas couldn't then continue to try and extract that extra capital uh, their ex- that extra surplus value from those workers kind of thing so it was again this investment in a particular type of fixed capital which was uh, squand was was it was unable for the capitalists to valorize it at times when production had to stop kind of thing um, which was a fetter that they suffered which the fossil capitalists didn't suffer kind of thing
0: Yeah. And that I I was really fascinated with that part because it speaks to the nature of the state, doesn't it? Where there had been a number of different movements to shorten the working day and to make capitalists stop, like, hiring children as slaves. <laughs> Making which children work adult lengths of day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God, those must have been some tough kids, Jesus. Yeah. I just imagine if I were to meet that kid, they'd just kick my ass, nine-year-old or not. Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But I have to remind you of that portion of the critique of the Gotha program that you like uh-oh. so much, where Marx is like... <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, the bit where I come out in favor of child labor. Yeah. <laughs> anyway that was the heat that were heat strokes that we were suffering in your attic this is the cold, the attic in which you're now freezing to death. So. exactly
0: but so it wasn't until like 1833 that this factory act actually passed well a number of different acts that actually passed about you know okay guys let's maybe not treat these people like shit but they were just never enforced and so it wasn't until 1833 that the state had to step in and actually enforce this stuff um you know, working day sets links on working days, made sure that if you were employing kids, you could prove that they're going to school, which is very, it's like, when are they going to school? They work like 10 hours a day. Come on. That is their school. That's what I would say. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because its they actually stepped in to restore profitability, right? Because pr- there was such a profitability crisis where exactly what you're saying with water, like people would wind up if it stopped raining and the water stopped. People would have to go, okay, they'd stop work, but then it would start raining and they go, oh crap, everybody back to work. So the working day was really long. So when they actually put in to place these limits on the working day and started to enforce them because there was like this huge, you know, class uprising where they were scared of revolution, et cetera, et cetera, in England, um, uh, it didn't really hurt steam capital as much as it hurt. Um, or steam production as much as it hurt uh, water production because water production they're like okay we have eight hours to produce but maybe four of those hours we're not going to be able to produce or even one of those hours it doesn't really matter steam they just go okay turn you know put some coal in the thing turn on the boiler let's go eight hours that's fine if everybody's doing that then it'll be fine by me right I thought that was interesting because I'm sure plenty of bourgeois histories are like the factory act of 1833 it passed because you know the people, it was a democracy and the people said that they wanted this, or they'll just say it was the state doing the right thing. Finally, you know, they they realized that they were doing the wrong thing. And so they decided the good people were finally elected and they did their good thing. And it's like, no, actually, this was because they literally had to, otherwise there'd be such a profitability crisis that everything would fall apart, right? It's really I mean, interesting.
1: But the other interesting part of that relationship that he talks about is the relationship between that portion of the class struggle that sort of like civil strife that comes from these arduously long days that people are being made to work and the resistance against that the reaction that that has from the capitalists is okay what we'll do is we'll speed up production we'll just extract what we've lost in that two and a half or one and a half hours of work day that we're not going to be able to make people work and we'll just speed up production through the rest of the working day and the fossil capitalists were in a position to do that because they could just make the machines run faster. <laughs> um, and what actually what it actually led to was a series of innovations in uh, steam engines that allowed them to run at faster and faster rates, which happened purely as a result of that, that portion of the class struggle kind of thing. Um, so it sort of r- reminds us the dynamic between capital and labor, which then sort of like influences the wider development and dynamics of capitalism. Um, obviously that was that speed up wasn't something that water powered mill owners were able to do kind of thing. So mom does describe that as the final death knell for, um, uh, water powered capitalism, I suppose.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder in this alternate history where they didn't make this switch, where what the militant unions would have actually kind of wound up doing. It's interesting. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Um, But yeah, we touched on this a bit in the 1820s as well, which is kind of like the tipping point for when um, 1820s and 1830s for when steam really started to be used, there was this big crisis of overaccumulation. And it's because typical, we've been talking about this a lot when we read the pollmatic and we've been talking about Grossman, it was a typical crisis of overaccumulation, right? There was just a run on Investment in fixed capital because everybody saw, oh wow, holy crap! Look at all the money that people are making in this textile manufacturing game. Wow, this is great. Surely this cotton is coming from a reputable, uh, fair trade source. I'm not even going to think about that. But um, because everybody was investing, that just meant that there were an absurd amount of factories built. And then all of a sudden, everybody just kind of looked around and they went, oh well, actually, we don't really need all of these. And so profitability fell. There was a huge crisis of overaccumulation. This coincided perfectly with really militant unions, which is really interesting. And even just like independent worker struggles of people just being like, this fucking sucks. I hate my water colony. I'm going to burn the place down. So what? I'll just go find work somewhere else. Um, or even just leaving. And obviously that led to them doing exactly what you thought about. It, you know, another idea is, well, what can we do? Okay, well, once everything comes back, once we find a new way to do this, they just automate things, right? And it's interesting because the automation, like we always think of technological advances like this as, oh, well, this will save us. This will save us plenty of time and we won't have to work, uh, Longer hours at all? Wow, we have what did they call it? Like the Iron Man or something like that. That's what they originally called the like self. I don't know, weaving loom or something. This new technology that they implemented and it like oh, steam. Wow, that's really gonna up productivity and make it so that we don't have to work much at all. But it's like no, the work will just change, right? Like labor and variable capital is still going to be a completely necessary part of the production process. And if you don't have it, you're not going to be making value, right? So it just changes the type of work that's actually done. Um, And this is what always happens whenever there's some new, you hear, you see it now, people being like, AI, this is going to save so many jobs. We're going to be able to have universal basic income and everybody just sit back and relax. And it's like, well, no, not really. Although I have been using uh, AI quite a bit at my work. Whenever I have to write an email, I just go, write me an email and it works perfectly. So it is actually going to save me (laughs) some time, but I still have to be at work. So what are you going to (laughs) do?
1: That sort sort of like dovetails quite nicely with the point I was about to make because I was going to bring up the other piece of technology and technological advance that he talks about in this book is the automation of weaving. So if you've got the automation of spinning, which is the sort of this. I don't. I clearly don't understand this process or this technology. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, describe it in the vaguest possible terms. But like the eye of man is this piece of technology that they develop to automate um, spinning. Of uh, cotton because it's an incredibly uh, technical process, and so actually the wages that are earned by spinners—there's um, probably a more technical term for that role—are um, <laughs> quite high. And as you say, there's at the, well at the beginning of the nineteen of the eighteen thirties, there's the re- repeal of the what um, uh, the, the act that prohibits trade unionism. Combination there's a repeal of the Combination Act which allows sort of trade unions to develop to be allowed to become legally active and there is this big obviously this big upswing in organizing and you have all of this industrial action and they realize that one of the ways they can circumvent the power of these um, this particularly skilled portion of the workforce is to automate it and then they can bring in women to man those machines because they're less sort of like require less physical exertion to run and you can pay them less. Um, And that's a much more malleable workforce that you can find scab labor for much more easily. But the other piece of technology, the other piece of automation that they do is the automation of the weaving. And for the longest time, that piece, that sort of like, that automation doesn't actually happen. The, The technology to automate weaving is around for decades before it's actually implemented. And prior to its automation, weaving was mostly conducted. Um, in the household, as a, that this process of putting out, where they would sort of send out the cotton to all of these sort of like cottest industry um, uh, weavers who would sort of like weave the cotton and then send it back to the capitalists, we woven, <laughs> woven into cloth or whatever, weaved. Um, <laughs> weaved, um, and one of the reasons why the implementation of automation in this pro- in this sort of field doesn't actually happen is because they're actually able to continually cut wages to those sort of home weavers. So there's not actually no, there's no um, economic advantage to automating it, right? You'd have to buy all this machinery and then put it in the factory and sort of like power it. Whereas you can just sort of send it out to all these cottage industries and have them do it. And you can, through various processes, because it's such a simple thing, they can actually cut wages constantly 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 and it goes through all the figures it sort of seems to go from like 25 shillings all the way down to six shillings or something in this sort of like secular trend downwards in wages for that kind of work Uh, (laughs) my tenuous connection to your ai was one of the reasons why um they move away from um the putting out system for the weaving of cloth and actually bring it into the factories and automate it is that all of these slightly savvy weavers who are more technically skilled actually work out how to weave the right size of cloth using less cotton through various mechanisms. And then they're able to siphon off a certain amount of um, cotton to sell on for themselves, which I'm loosely analoging to your uh... using ai to to be having like a fake win back some of your own time (laughs) by making your job fake and automating it yourself yeah yeah Uh,
0: yeah listen boss that's time i could have spent looking at warhammer bottles please
1: (laughs) (laughs) or reading fossil capital
0: or reading fossil Uh, capital indeed.
1: but yeah but yeah but yeah but the yeah the broader point is like um Technology is not going to be implemented if it doesn't benefit. The, they don't. Capitalism doesn't automatically automate for the sake of it. It has to. There has to be these sort of social dynamics going on that cause it to happen. And most often, it's the relationship between capital and labor, and sort of the antagonisms within that relationship, which um, lead to automation. If it is indeed an antagonistic relationship for capitalists, uh, obviously, it's constantly an antagonistic relationship for, yeah, um, the workers.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, part of this, right, is all just building a world in which we can actually just develop our creative potentials and our productive apparatuses without there being, like, an antagonism or without... At one point, he gets into being, like, people only invent things because they need to, right? Out of poverty, out of, like, you know, necessity, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, like, would be nice to live in a world where that wasn't the case.
1: Yeah. Well, there's. I... <clears throat> Sorry, one day we really ought to read some G.A. Cohen and try and work yeah. out what the basis of his uh, his his arguments are. Obviously, I've sort of broadly categorized him as a sort of technological determinist. And obviously, we've read a lot of histories which are more minded toward a kind of like social determinism. Um, but what you were just, just describing then seems to be the sort of like... What I understand to be G.A. Cohen's argument as it is outlined very briefly in the portions of fossil capital that we've read. Right. So maybe we'll get onto the later chapters and it will be. Brought, We're experts brought on Jay Cohen. Fully. And then we'll... we've read half of a book. Where talked about. <laughs> and then we will learn which side of the argument Andreas mom is going to come down upon. Um, I will say this Cohenite is the first he's come. Jay Cohn has
0: come up a lot in our readings and it's always been people just shitting on him. This is the first time where he's been like, yeah, Jay Cohen, you know, cool guy. Yeah. So yeah, it'd be yeah. nice to about actually a read them. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like, there is a certain amount of technological determinism in Marx, but it's just also paired with other types of determinism, right? Like, it is, you can't just completely disregard the development of productive forces, obviously, right? So, but it's like, where does that come from? A lot of this I've been thinking about, like, a really simple explanation of this transition would just be, it was just capitalism, as we would say, existed prior to this transition. And its adoption, at least in the textile industry, of water power as a type of formal subsumption of the productive forces that existed prior to capitalism's formation, right? I mean, obviously, water wheels go back thousands of years, water power, stuff like that. So then if you take that for granted, then this development of a fossil economy, quote unquote, is the real subsumption of a new type of energy production under capitalism, right? It mirrors like lengthening of the working day as formal subsumption, as opposed to like upping productivity as real subsumption in the labor sphere. I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about it. And it kind of gets you around the like, well, no, it doesn't because then you have to be like, well, why did that happen, right? So you do actually need to specifically think about, well, like, why did this subsumption take place? This isn't just gonna happen with capitalism. And it makes me also think about like, well, this is a bigger question, but like, does capitalism require fossil fuels? At least to get to the point where it is now, obviously, yeah. And I mean, that's why we're seeing, like, one of the reasons we're seeing such a drop in productivity and such a drop in profitability is that it's now just getting harder and harder to get fossil fuels. Um, but one could imagine, I guess, like a way in which capitalism just kept going on renewables, although maybe it would have collapsed by now because that's just like the biggest frontier, right, is trying to find new energy sources that can be valorized using labor. So I don't know. Not renewables yeah, I, mean, I guess.
1: It, yeah I mean it takes it back to the question of cheap natures right like fossil fuel is the most stunningly consequential cheap nature that capitalism has had to exploit over the past 200 or 300 years or whatever of its existence. Um, it reminds me one of the paradigms that he talks about in this or one of the sort of rubrics that he talks about is this, this um, use of the idea of time and displacement and time and he sort of talks about The going right back to the introduction of the first chapter of this book he sort of talks sort of broadly describes the problem of global warming as this sort of like problem in time where we're sort of like uh, kicking the can down the road and, and he sort of frames it in some ways in sort of like ethical terms and there's definitely an ethical argument that like we're committing this great evil on the future but he also talks about it in terms of like once you've invested a certain amount in a technology, you then sort of like you're sort of committed to one kind of road kind of thing. So this is sort of like the, the more you you invest in something, the more you are sort of like committing yourself over time to continue to build upon it. Um, uh, the reason why I started talking about this, because there's also this displacement in time in terms of when he, when he's talking about this sort of like uh ricardian malthusian paradigm one of the descriptions of the way sort of human beings overcome some of these shortages is that like prior to the use of fossil fuels we um sort of only have access to the solar energy that falls on the earth right now kind of thing and that sort of like causes the wind in some ways in direct ways and it it causes uh, river to flow water to flow in rivers so that's sort of like the exploitation of those renewable sources are sort of like a somewhat like an exploitation of sort of present energy whereas like fossil fuel is an exploitation of energy stored from the past kind of thing so it's sort of tapping into this sort of like almost a temporal resource that's been locked away and then we're um now able to exploit as a cheap nature which allows for this sort of like um Self-sustaining growth that I'm putting in air quotes because I don't understand it, not because I'm <laughs> dubious. I'll do that for everything <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, the re- when when we come back to that sort of like um, portion of the um, Ricardian-Malthusian paradigm that mom wants to criticise, it's not obvi- it's obviously not sufficient to say, okay, we are going to exploit this source of power which is in some ways outside of the present it's from the past because human beings have ex- been exploiting fossil fuel for um thousands of years and there have been particularly intense exploitations of fossil fuel in sort of the in the domestic economy and also in the broader economy he talks a little bit about periods of chinese history where um, use of fossil fuel sort of reaches the same kind of level that it did in elizabethan england um, and neither of those, that portion of Chinese history nor Elizabethan history actually gave rise to fossil capitalism, as he describes in this book. So there's obviously something else going on. But I mean we've covered that already, what that thing is. is there's
0: something like, else going on here. Thing is, something else is happening. <laughs>
1: Self-sustaining. <historically. road. laughs> yeah, it's yeah, definitely capitalism seemingly capitalism yeah, Exactly. <laughs> it's definitely capitalism seemingly happened folks, and we've got to we've got to <laughs> come to terms with it. <laughs>
0: It's definitely seemingly uh atemporal, right? Like that's the whole point. It's like, oh, here's this energy source that's been locked away for hundreds of millions of years, right? Uh we have unlimited access to it, but it's like, no, it's we're just re-releasing all of that back into the atmosphere and the temporal aspect of it as well comes into well, we're running out of it, right? It's not this unlimited mm-hmm. source, it's just sitting there, right? So yeah, we'll see. It gets into also a bigger question of like, can capitalism survive not having fossil fuels at this point? Um, if we can imagine a capitalism that didn't have it, maybe we can imagine one that survives it. But I'm very dubious of that. Um, I think maybe we'll leave that until we kind of finish the book. But hmm.
1: yeah, wa- yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm wa- I'm wondering whether I'm just it's just I'm wondering whether this is a very speculative thought. I'm wondering <laughs> whether the the transition away from a, a fossil-fueled economy represents a massive destruction of fixed capital um, that would allow for conditions of growth to return.
0: Right, but I guess then, what would that?
1: What capital would that growth be, predicated be invested on? in?
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's stuff yeah. where you you can't really valorize. Like it would it would have to be unrenewables or. Because right. like even something like nuclear nuclear, I would imagine that like you get much more energy from a small amount of uranium, right? Even though that it is uh mined using labor, it, it just you can't make a profit, I would imagine, yeah. off nuclear power. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it comes back to the necessity of having a new cheap nature.
0: We need to find a new cheap nature. Need- Let's get our best <laughs> scientists looking at yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Hmm. yeah i don't know what do you make what do you make of just so far what we've read of the designation of the fossil economy and of fossil capital because for for me it very much like what i've already said i guess about the climate question and just e- the ecological question in general is not necessarily being one solely of our use of fossil fuels although that is like the biggest part but also i don't know i think if we're gonna have a critique of the oikios, the historical oikios, right—the like way in which we've interacted and with and created new natures and the natures have created us, blah 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 blah. That necessarily has to go beyond capitalism as well, because as much as we want to just hassle capitalism, capitalism is not the only mode of production in which we've just like destroyed our environment, right? And just like pretended that we live outside of our ecology and just mess with things. I mean, wolves and old growth forests—at least on this uh, syphilitic island went extinct well before the development of capitalism, right? I mean, like, what old growth forests are left in the UK? I would imagine none, if any, right? Maybe there's like a small patch, I don't know. But like, I think I've heard of this book described as more politically useful than the Jason Moore. And I think so far, I just completely disagree. Because I think, yes, if politically useful means easy to explain to people, maybe. But I also keep thinking in the back of my mind of the jason moore quote where he says if you make your criticism all about fossil fuels then your activism becomes about shutting down a coal power plant but if it's about the way in which we create natures and respond to natures creating us then you end capitalism for good right so
1: Hmm. i don't know i mean i suppose maybe to defend it a little bit there's a sort of like what's happening here is a question of how fossil fuels and the exploitation of fossil fuels has kind of intersected um, with capitalism's tendency to exploit nature and whether fossil fuels um, empowered but also empowered a a growth in capitalism and a form of capitalism which then allowed it to expand and further pursue this exploitation of nature more broadly um it seems to be what he's applying is like growth kicks off with the adoption of fossil fuels in industry growth on a scale that allows for capitalism capitalism as we know it and so although the tendency of capitalism well the tendency of human beings in general to exploit nature um in a dialectical process as we've talked about but also it there is this pr- this tendency of capitalism to exploit nature and maybe the fossil economy is integral in allowing capitalism to exploit nature more broadly i don't know whether that makes any sense but um that yeah would be my no it,
0: it definitely is yeah. i guess it's yeah. it's also just like
1: i it's totally understandable
0: to want to do a study of why fossil fuels were adopted seeing as like the complete ecological destruction wrought by fossil fuels and the necessity to end them like end using them completely like yesterday right but yeah I mean, I don't know. Again, the climate question... Well, I mean, the ecological question is much broader, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's still I, good.
1: I, yeah. I would agree that I don't... So far, I wouldn't describe this book as politically useful. I would describe it as a really interesting, very detailed history. Yeah. Um, Which, so far, has been generally enjoyable. Yeah. a yeah. little bit long and wordy.
0: There is a lot of detail. she's so like, yeah, okay... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the river air and then this it's like yeah okay that's what you need to do right i guess like that's the reason that we don't read history is because you actually need to study things and you need to have an index as long as this book's one and for a bibliography i mean so you know, what are you gonna do we've said before if you want to do history you actually have to do history and study things imagine that <laughs> um but yeah yeah i don't know i yeah i do i do want to say that overall this has obviously been very good so far i am i think the one thing i am waiting for is that connection between the British manufacturing industry when it comes to textiles adopting fossil fuels and everyone else doing it. Right. Um, So yeah, we'll see. Coal, not, not my favorite thing. Um, And especially relevant this week as well as have you been seeing all of the coal protests in um, Germany outside of like that small village that they've just completely destroyed with those huge like wheel miners that are like the things that just completely rip up the environment. Greta got arrested today, which is very funny. Good for her. Yeah, Um, Pro-Greta podcast, I hate to say it Good for Greta, that's what I have to say about Greta Good for her, she's doing more than I am So, what are you going to do?
1: Yeah I did not know anything about those coal protests Although I'm pleased that we are able to be topical
0: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly I mean, surprise, surprise You protest against nuclear power And uh, then they go to their coal reserves So, you know, uh, what are you going to do? It's not great, either one, not great But coal, especially not great all right, so we'll be we'll be back with uh, the second half of this book. Um, yeah, obviously I'm excited to getting to. He also brings it around, I think, hopefully to like the modern day, and I think there's a whole section here on China, which would be very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe a, these are the political useful sections because, like, I think his endeavor is to explain how you tran- how we've transitioned into fossil fuels so that we can work out a transition out of them. I suppose so. There's something political to be learned from a history. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm just not going to be walking around telling everybody. Well, you see, if you consider the space and the time aspect mm, of water, yes, yes.
1: It's, it's all uh, when we when we transitioned from flow to stock sources of energy. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, um, it's yeah, it was about time that we got to this, just because I like Andreas Malm has become someone that everybody talks about very quickly as well. Um, between this book and his head to blow up a pipeline book, he's become one of the kind of like more popular kind of Marxist ecologist guys out there right now. And so it was a bit of a
1: gaping um, yeah, so a book on COVID, which maybe we should look up at some point. Did he? If, we, if we want to reconsider <laughs> things about COVID at all.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking the other day, man, it's definitely not a good thing that there is just like a, a deadly COVID variant that is just normal now. And just in the global, the global ecosystem, it's just out there and everyone's going to get it several times. That's not a great thing. No all right so uh we continue our ecological quest to uh fix everything and uh we'll be back next time with uh part two we gotta get reading jeez we gotta yeah. stop picking long books
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i'm looking forward to it thank you good conversation Jack. yeah thank good. you, well, there you